1: Looking for recaps of The Mandalorian Season 3? Well, this is the way, as we are talking Chapter 20, The Foundling, over on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. Mike Bloom here. Whoa, we're halfway there, and I'm saying whoa, whoa, because I'm being carried away, Rich, by a giant raptor.
0: We're halfway there. It hurts to say it, but my gosh, what a fun week, Mike. The roller coaster ride of emotions continues <laughs> for me. Uh, this was very, very fun. I'm really excited to talk through this one with you.
1: Yeah, so episode four of The Mandalorian season three. Uh, you would say that for the first time in a bit, we are not planet hopping right now. We have stayed on what is up to this point, I believe, a still unidentified planet that they all these children of the Watch have just kind of hunkered down in for the time being. But, obviously, we saw Bo-Katan, Din-Jarn, and Grogu arrive there after bo home got blown up at the end of last episode. And so we continue to stay there in an episode that feels oppositional to the last one in many ways. Uh, this was comparatively shorter to the last episode, ranging at only half an hour, uh, including the five-minute credits sequence. This one felt more singularly focused, in my opinion, focusing on this calamity that occurs during a regular regular day of training and the rescue therein with a scope perhaps of maybe some planet hopping in the form of a flashback sequence and for however you may have thought about the polarizing aspects of the focus on Pershing last episode really getting back to the nitty-gritty much like again Rich you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago getting back to what people loved about the show in the first place which is Dinjarin and Grogu going on an adventure and doing quote Star Wars shit and we got a lot of Star Wars shit in this episode including the literal best cameo which I'm super excited to get into really fun really enjoyable episode of the Mandalorian this week
0: that's really fun it is the best cameo isn't it that's a good one Um, I, you know part of the like looking back towards last week what I've really loved about it on ambiguously is the discourse and the kind of diversity of perspective on last week's episode a lot of people really loved it and it's some of their favorite Mandalorian content so far and so I'm here for that I, it doesn't all need to be um, perfectly tailored to my taste that being said this is the consummate Mandalorian episode it's got it all we've got great character development from a lot of our leads right in in kind of like meaningful ways we're exploring the lore we get to peel back some information and answer some questions that we have about some of these characters that we've been asking for three seasons we get awesome action set pieces monsters combat like it's all there um part of the conversation that Latanya and fitzy and i had on the feedback show Latanya just kept talking about this notion of adventure and that is so just fundamental to what i am looking for out of this Mm -hmm. show the whole monster of the week Vibe, the cool like mandalorians doing cool mandalorian stuff uh, it felt great it was delightful and um, despite my my criticisms of last week's episode like i guess i appreciate the the roller coaster dynamic of like you do need to sit there and let that thing drag you up to the top of the hill for the big fun drop down and that's what this half hour episode felt like to be it was a it was a rip roar and screaming ride down the hill and i loved it
1: yeah, as long as you have Din Djarin to catch you at the bottom, you'll be totally fine. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, you'll be snatched up by that bigger fish that once again makes an appearance. Of course, you mentioned Fitzy and LaTanya. Of course, you'll be getting together with that motley crew, not skeleton crew, certainly later this weekend to get into their thoughts on the episode, uh, hear some feedback from you all, plus perhaps get into some Star Wars news, which certainly a bunch has come out in mm-hmm. the past week or so, perhaps in anticipation of Star Wars celebration that's only happening in a couple of weeks' time. Make sure you send in your feedback. You can email Wars at PostureRecaps.com. If you're a member of the Posture Recaps patron discord, which you can become a member of at any time at a slash patron, We have channels there that are not only talking about Mando, but talking about Bad Batch, which is also airing episodes simultaneously, as well as any general Star Wars news, general grievous Star Wars news, perhaps, uh, depending on what you might think about certain recent items of news. But for right now, we're going to get into the recap of The Foundling proper. We should mention, directed by Carl Weathers. And he's a natural for this, in my opinion. It's always interesting when you bring in quote-unquote big names to direct be they you know obviously jean favreau being the first one but be they you know a bryce dallas howard mm-hmm. uh you know whether it be a robert rodriguez and so it's fun to have a cast member always step behind the camera and pivot their role into a director's seat little sad that we didn't get any grief Carga to you know have him directing himself while wearing those resplendent magistrate robes but i feel like he got served up a hell of an episode right to talk about that adventure aspect the fact that we are Going to these giant mountaintops to fight these flying creatures feels quintessential Star Wars. And so really no training wheels for Carl Weathers here. But I think he peddled admirably. He had a stew going on here with a lot of great stuff, as you mentioned, going on both character and plot wise in this episode
0: yeah I love it it's so fun Uh, I talked about this in the feedback podcast too but part of my like undying adoration for Bo-Katan is my love of Katie Sackhoff as an actress right and getting to see her in this really prominent like uh, high profile kind of role right and it's the same sort of deal for Carl Weathers right where especially if you're an Arrested Development fan his character that is just so hilarious Mm -hmm. and he has been so outspoken about his kind of gratitude at being included in this project and at having that grace extended to him to be like hey come behind the camera do some work we really want you to be part of this and the dude really killed it um, we had a little message from LT in our Star Wars group chat of like wow Carl Re- Weather's directed the the hell out of that episode and indeed he did it really is very cool to to see the way that the people that are part of this ensemble they've put together creatively get to contribute behind the camera it's very very fun
1: Yeah, I would say actually looking back on it, this is probably the most action-y episode we have had of The Mandalorian so far. And action scenes are underratedly tough to do in my opinion. For sure. Considering we're going to get a chase scene on the night of Order 66 to even just a fight through the sky. There's a lot of moving pieces happening. And I think Carl Weathers was able to handle this 4D chessboard really well and not let the Wookiee win in that perspective. So let's get into it here. So... Again, we're starting on this unknown planet, and it's like we're all the way back in Winterfell, Rich. We have people sparring, practicing, uh, you know, shooting things out into the water, and that's going to include Grogu getting brought in, uh, because while he was a Jedi, remember, he left that behind. He did pick up some tricks, which he will invoke very soon, but he is technically a foundling of the children of the Watch, and so it's about time that he begins his training, and... I'm really intrigued to see where this goes. I think my major question is, Din was able to get away with the whole helmet thing here, right? By saying, well, he doesn't know how to talk. Therefore, Mm -hmm. he can't speak the creed. Therefore, he doesn't need to wear a helmet. I mean, I guess the armorer is going to have to make some sort of helmet with ear holes, right? I don't know how you could cram all that into a little helmet.
0: This was a huge question that I had for Brendan and uh, LT on the feedback show is, is it a helmet with ear holes or is it metal ears? Does he have the Beskar ears to fit his ears up into? And I saw a couple of people said to me, no, 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 he's going to have to fold his ears down into that helmet. I said, this is entirely unacceptable. You can't make Grogu fold his ears down on top of his head. Um, Once she started working the Beskar too, I I started thinking, oh, is this going to be a helmet? But I love this energy, right? The whole choice that Grogu was presented with in Boba Fett of, do you want the the armor or do you want the lightsaber? Will you train as a Jedi will you you return to the Mandalorians as a foundling. And then, you know, there was a lot of buzz this week as the episode title came out. and We saw where we were going with it. But this whole notion of Mandalorians being Mandalorians and training with one another and showing the youth, I love it. I, I'm so excited that we got to um, just get a little bit of a view into that yeah. of what this whole covert is kind of doing on this exceptionally dangerous planet, Mike. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> Cause, a cause very have, harrowing like, place.
1: Stop. Off, shop their options around, do their house hunters version of like, well, I like this planet, but it's full of monsters. This planet's too cold, but it's within our price range. It really does seem like they said, all right good enough, let's settle here and make do with whatever comes our way.
0: They don't have time to find their Goldilocks planet. There was some discourse in the Discord about whether or not this is one of the planets in the Mandalorian system, right? When we actually went to Mandalore and we had Din point out a couple places, here's where Bo-Katan lives, that's the moon that I grew up on. The the greater notion here is that the Mandalorian system at one part, I believe, I might be speaking out of turn here, but it included something like a thousand planets, if I'm remembering correctly. It was like a huge kind of area in space. Um, the scale of the galaxy, lest we forget in Star Wars, is really easy to lose in a world where like you hit light speed and three seconds later, we're on the other side of the solar system. Um, but I was really curious, like where this place is and a lot of speculation there. And I wonder if it'll ever be revealed. But I kind of like that they're on this really inhospitable kind of wild place. Like, I guess it makes sense that if you're trying to hide, you would go someplace that's not necessarily very accomplished accommodating. accommodating to a civilization right
1: yeah that you know it's the version of a new hope when the empire is scanning for life forms on the pod that descends on tatooine and doesn't find any like
0: (laughs) you're just gonna
1: assume on the surface level well nobody's gonna live there there's monsters in the water and in the air so we're just gonna leave it be I mean, they didn't make the jump to hyperspace to escape the, the, the TIE Fighters last week. So my guess would be it's at least a distance away. But you rightfully bringing up how many planets there are in the Mandalorian system, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It could just be that maybe it's like the outer rim of Mandalore almost. and It's the most distant planet, the Pluto of the Mandalorian system. And that's where they're residing.
0: Yeah, either way, I think it's fun, right? If we never identify where this place is, I think it still works, and I like the notion um, that that it has a little personality, you know? It's this kind of wild world with these giant megalithic creatures creeping around everywhere, and it's got a vibe to it already.
1: Yeah, I know we uh, referenced the Morlocks a couple episodes ago, but this also gives me, like, Land of the Lost vibes, and, like, oh, Mm -hmm. we're just living alongside these dinosaur-esque creatures, which it was a long, long time ago, so perhaps they did coexist. So we have Grogu sparring with this child that will turn out to be named Ragnar and you mentioned Katie Sackoff, Rich. I've only watched a few episodes of Battlestar Galactica, but the only thing I could think of when I heard the name Ragnar was Ragnar Anchorage, which is a pivotal location in the miniseries version of Battlestar Galactica. I will say no more, but that's the only thing I could think of.
0: It's very great callback right there from the very beginning. Um, Ragnar, like a classic kind of Viking name. I love the idea that this guy, Paz Vizla, who's like cousin, brother, whoever was named pre vizla is like yeah. f his name in convention of like three-letter 3, three letter words that start with p i'm naming my kid ragnar um ragnar notably being played by jimmy kimmel's cousin which is a funny little (laughs) weird tidbit okay
1: all right nepotism the mouse is like well we put him on late night so on his side of the deal is that he's gonna get his relative within the star wars universe pray he doesn't alter it further Yeah, indeed. Pray he doesn't.
0: Um, This whole beat of the training and the notion of like, oh, he can't speak and he doesn't wear the helmet. And we'll get some more kind of discussion about the role of the helmets later and answers to questions that we've been asking for three seasons. Like, but how do they
1: Listen, (laughs) are the answers completely logical? No, but like their answers you know yeah. it, it maybe it goes to show perhaps the whole point of yeah these extremists are kind of dumb in the things that they preach and practice in order to uh, you know truly live through the creed that they have vowed themselves to uphold since the beginning. Part
0: of the like revelation that I had looking back at the last couple of episodes is how much I enjoyed and how kind of inspired I am by the idea of all the different faces behind these helmets right? I mean there could be like such an eclectic array of people there and and there's something to this idea of like I don't know conformity is not necessarily an ideal thing but the idea of belonging right and that they all wear this same face and and the kind of power in that the strength that they find that regardless of the disparity between them as individuals that they can all like have this uniform face that they look at one another through Uh, there's something really just inspiring about for my imagination about that whole idea and I found myself pondering a lot like who are the people behind these men um, I, I love it. I love this whole ensemble of like the rainbow hues of the many Mandalorians, Mike. It's a really fun vibe.
1: Yeah, it was something I certainly did not expect, again, given the typical wayfaring that we get from the Mandalorian of, okay, I'm assuming we're going to a different place every episode. Hell, even at the end of last week, right, you and I are saying, okay, so I guess are we staying on this planet? Where do we go from here? And I think it's yet another swerve that the show made in this third season, which is, kind of situating us on a new hq we thought it was going to be navarro instead of tatooine mm-hmm. it is not it apparently is this planet but it allows us to get to know at least a bit of these other mandalorians whether they be named or not and just to see how populated this group is that really has become a community we mentioned this before the other mandalorian groupings we have seen in the show before have been sparse uh we talk about seeing the book of boba fett when there were just three of them and now mm-hmm. there's an entire teeming population where They even have children that are practicing, you know, firing paintballs at each other. Speaking of which, we should talk about that very fun sequence as Grogu is going to face off against Ragnar. And of course, you know, they don't give them live ammo. I'm assuming this is maybe a bit of practice of things like the whistling birds as an example. And maybe Grogu can make his own whistling birds. If he's able to use the force, perhaps guide these, uh, these little darts to wherever he wants them to go.
0: Uh, Grogu just like continuing to like destroy me every scene as he's like playing with the little crab thing. It's delightful. The whole beat of like Bo-Katan being like, he's just like my dad, my dad did the same thing. He's just (laughs) the the return to him. Like he, he doesn't know how to shoot the darts. What do you mean? He doesn't know how to shoot the darts. It's like delightful, Mike. It is so much fun, man.
1: Yeah, I really enjoy the crab moment because. It reminds me of what I think Ewan McGregor has said in the promotion for Obi-Wan of what he loved to do, which was to stand in front of automatic doors and pretend to use the Force to open them. Like, that's what Grogu was kind of doing, right? He was pretending to move the rocks with the Force when it turns out they were just crabs the entire time. (laughs) Exactly.
0: It's very, very funny. Um, Like, Grogu's whole interactions, the fact that he's just becoming, like, more and more like this toddler Grogu, you know? His little, like, shuffling around, his flippy flips. Oh,
1: I laughed so hard when it's gonna happen later on when the armorer beckons him and he, <laughs> he, he usually like saunters this kid freaking waddles not yaddles across the sand like and it just made me laugh out. lot because I guess I couldn't think of Grogu walking quickly cuz we're not used yep. to it. Now that I saw it, I'm delighted by it.
0: He does a little hustle shuffle. Yeah, his potato sack. <laughs> it's so adorable, man, <laughs> as he's just like squiggling his way forward. Uh a tangent, but Pedro Pascal recently on Hot Ones, which is often a delightful interview mm-hmm. show, right? Um and he was just talking about working with Grogu and the different kind of Grogu's there are. There's like an animatronic and a kind of remote controlled one. And and he's got this great beaker in the interview where He's like there are times I'm sitting there cradling this little robot the eyes are moving at the ears and the whole thing and i'm just looking down and i'm like would you stop stealing the goddamn scene please you know <laughs> um and and they're just he he does he captures it like so well here this whole beat you know how it's going to play before we get there and it kind of plays out on our expectations exactly like there's the question after he gets shot twice by the little paintball darts of like Is he just like a a pacifist? Is he nonviolent? Does he really not want to engage with this? Is he going to like resist this training as well? Because he wants to like walk an entirely different path. He doesn't want to know how to fight. Right. Um, And the fact that then he just does his little potato sack backflips and like just triple shots with young Ragnar was like awesome, man. So much fun.
1: And to add insult to injury, Ragnar is licking his wounds by the water and gets taken away by a freaking raptor into the sky. And of course, you know, we, a few of them are going to chase after in futility, but Bo-Katan was able to tail it. Thank goodness somebody had a spaceship, apparently. And so they're going to enact a plan, a rescue mission, where it's going to be Din, it's going to be Bo, it's going to be Paz Vizla, who we won't find out until later exactly why he has recruited himself to this mission. And also the Shriek Hawk Fighters. Rich, is there any canonical basis for this group of people?
0: I don't believe so. I don't know them, right? But in the same way that last episode, when kind of Bo rolls up um, and Paz Vizla is asking her, who are you, Night Owl? There are these little kind of like cells within the clans, these organizations, these kind of fighting units, right? And where Bo led the Night Owls as this kind of like sect of Mandalorians that followed her at one point after Death Watch. I presume it is something like that. That's kind of how I read it. It felt to me like, again, just a Star Wars move of like, we're just going to talk about this thing that is now established in canon as though it's been there for a long
1: time and you should know what it is Uh yeah so according to Wikipedia, it looks like the shriek hawk is the sigil that is typically used of clan vizsla and also because of that was previously linked to death watch so maybe they're trying to reappropriate the image but it does make sense that Paz was the one that was asked to recruit them
0: yeah very much it was very cool This this whole beat like the conflict the tension Between Paz Vizla and the others We've obviously seen it with he and Din But there is a camaraderie there at the end Of season one like Paz Vizla is the one who Leads the whole rest of that covert To get like massacred in the streets And, and defend Din and get Grogu out So there's this real like Frenemies bro vibe between Them but yeah. again all of the kind Of uh, preloaded history that we get Coming in with Bo-Katan sets her Up for that to be a really tense relationship 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 to a certain degree. Uh, Pre vizla whatever he was, whether he was past Vizla's cousin, brother, family member, we we imagine like some conflict there. And he's very adversarial as she rolls up last week. So this is fun. The evolution of the kind of begrudging respect that we're going to develop between them and the revelation that like, oh, God, this is his son, uh, which is really wild to think about when we consider like he's got a son, but he can't take the helmet off. Like, take that where you will, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. It's very fun.
1: I mean, if you love the person that's, you know, under the helmet, helmet at all, why would that be any different, perhaps, in the bedroom?
0: I guess. Yeah, I guess. Just, uh, it's quite an image to evoke, you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess I am trying
1: to think, does the way mean you can't take your helmet off even to, like, your spouse or your significant other?
0: I mean, it kind of seems like that. It's funny, because watching this episode, I had that exact conversation uh, with my partner as we were sitting there watching it. And she's kind of asking, like can you not take it off in front of your family that is so dumb (laughs) i'm like yes i think that's part of the point like it is very ridiculous and antiquated and kind of silly and an interesting point that kind of came up in discussion about last week's episode is like now that din and bo know about the living waters can they just take their helmet off freely and kind of fly back there to like take a new bath and get cleansed every time (laughs) is it like confession every week mike where they can kind of like
1: it's like rosary beads, right? You just have yep. to go through a couple, and then you know, say the creed once again, and then you're refreshed and ready to go. So, yeah, they found their get out of jail free card, but it was also really tough to get down there. They don't, they don't want to face off with the weird bionicle creature one more time. So they figured, yeah. okay, let me re up for the time being until we figure out exactly what that is.
0: True, it's very true. Uh, they should probably stick to their guns. The the whole dynamic of them going is really cool. I love uh, the the mandalorians like jetpacks running out of fuel. This is yeah. one of these moments that. Is like deeply satisfying somehow <laughs> on like a logistical mechanical level of like that actually makes sense they could only chase this flying creature so far before they ran out of juice you know so yeah bo katan being like the thinker of like i will get in my ship and fly after this gigantic creature felt pretty satisfying uh also that ship is really dope dude very cool to see it
1: Oh, I love bow ship. I'm glad. Well, I don't want to put the N1 in the hangar just yet, I-, no. I love getting to see it because it really does its job here. And also I think serves as a better way to, like, effectively bring multiple crew members. And as we'll find out, maybe a couple of stowaways as well on board, which obviously the N1 is not able to do compared to the Razor Crest. So Grogu gets left behind here, but the armor has a job for him, or at least has a way to continue his training. She's going to sort of monologue here about comparing the foundlings themselves to the metal that she works with right they begin as raw ore and through training they refine themselves but through that weaknesses are exposed and perhaps it is that statement that brings about a time that grogu recalled back in the book of boba fett but we see much more of perhaps it was this idea of weaknesses being exposed in the jedi That brings about a much fuller memory, Rich, than what we are used to of Grogu's escape, essentially, from the clone troopers on the Night of Order 66.
0: Yes, this is the weekly moment of The Mandalorian. It's been consistently happening all of season three, where I stand up off the couch and come, like, shuffling to the TV. My hustle shuffle, like Grogu, as quick as I can to be like, do I know these people? Oh, my God, what is even happening? This is unbelievable. I can't get over it. And then I got a little bit sad, Mike, because I'm like... Wait, does Grogu have PTSD? Like, yeah, I think that that's I think basically he what's happening.
1: <laughs> I, I, think, I, think he, I mean, honestly, it's a combination of PTSD and sort of, like, repressed memories. Yep. It seems like if we're to believe that he is perhaps, if we're following the journey alongside him from a mental perspective, that he is, like, slowly regaining this these memories from a very traumatic night.
0: Yeah, really heavy, but what an awesome moment, right? Again, we're able to utilize this really iconic touchstone of Order 66 in Star Wars that like roots us firmly in time, in place, in context. We have so much kind of like um preloaded knowledge just waiting there to be unlocked that the second that we shift into that scene, we know where we are, we know what's going on, and it becomes like desperate and frantic, even though we know that he's gonna end up here uh years later, as it were. It's it's harrowing and it's like emotionally effective transition. I love the play out of like the armor forging and even just to go to like the armor and what she's talking about. It's so easy to make fun of the way and the helmets and the whole kind of Children of the Watch cult vibe. But I do really love the metaphor that she's extrapolating off of this about like we burn out the impurities forged through fire. You know, it's a little Coach mm. Wade, maybe, but it does still like. It maps onto this warrior culture and and part of like the ridiculous sort of um, like uh, 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 things that they do, you know, traditions that they hold, this notion of like why we can't take the armor off. It is literally like a physical embodiment of us in a way. But this return to Coruscant, very cool. Coruscant looks so good, man. And then we get the best cameo.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about what, like, died in the wool Star Wars fans might call the climax of the episode, honestly, and this is before we get to climbing into a freaking dragon pit, basically, is the Jedi that are protecting Grogu throughout this temple keep saying, get him to Kelerin, get him to Kelleran. and I thought, okay, is this a planet? Is this a refuge that he's going to take? No, because the elevator doors will open, and we see a Jedi by the name of Kelleran Beck Played by none other than Ahmed Best, who is most notoriously known for being the actor behind the very polarizing character of Jar Jar Binks. It is so interesting that obviously there's been a lot of deserved discourse in the wake of, you know, Kelly Marie Tran's treatment after The Last Jedi as to Star Wars fans being pretty toxic to people that are a part of these properties that we love. But even before the internet really existed in the way that it does today, that was kind of happening. And Ahmed Best is unfortunately an example of that. That suffice it to say, people did not like Jar Jar Banks. And Ahmed Best was unfortunately the recipient of a lot of unwarranted criticism and hatred towards him, right? Where him and Jake Lloyd, I feel like, were some of the most maligned people from Star Wars fans' perspective. It caused Ahmed Best to kind of like, become a hermit for a little bit. Now, what is interesting is that the character he is playing, Kelleran Beck, is actually a character he has played before, technically. So Ahmed Best has kind of been given the olive branch from uh, the greater Star Wars universe in a very different perspective. In 2020, he hosted a show called Jedi Temple Challenge, which is basically like a star Wars legends of the hidden temple. It's featuring like teams of two of younger kids undergoing their Jedi trials, but they're trying to build in this sort of lore behind it of, Oh, my name is Keller Beck. I'm a Jedi. And I'm here to guide you through your trials. Uh, I was aware of it because actually uh, a friend of mine who I've had the pleasure of having on the BNB a couple times, comedian Mary Holland actually does the voice of like the sidekick droid. On oh, that, cool. Which is, yeah. yeah. Which is very fun. But interestingly, they decide, okay, let's not reinvent the wheel here. We'll just make Keller and Beck a part of this as well. So it is incredibly exciting to see Ahmed Best essentially, in my opinion, get a second chance of bringing a character to life in the Star Wars universe.
0: Dude, it is so cool, right? As a 19-year-old kid who clearly had some pretentious tastes back in the day, I remember going to see The Phantom Menace and coming out like, what was that? I'm not sure how I feel about that, you know? It's come to be a movie that I really deeply enjoy and appreciate. It's got some great kind of beats in it. I'm a big defender of the prequels at this point in my life. But yeah, I'm at Best, Jake Lloyd, I think even like Hayden Christensen to an extent. These guys became like, real lightning rods for Mm -hmm. the fans dissatisfaction with lucas's choice about the scripts uh you know these actors if they they're just getting like paid to do a job to perform a role he didn't create jar jar biggs and insert him in those films and that's just the the kind of irrationality that comes out of this stuff you know if you don't like rose so be it but kelly marie tran is just like a person trying to get a gig and god bless her for getting the opportunity to be part of star wars so these this olive branch being extended you know getting uh hayden Christensen giving him the opportunity to come back again this year and, and reprise the role of Anakin at a much more mature point and bask in the like love and affection from the people that grew up on this stuff and loved it so unironically and unambiguously, you know, there are people like me that were 20 years old when those movies came out. And I can look back now and appreciate Jar Jar Binks, but I'll never love him the way a kid that grew up with him did. Right. For me, Mm that's warwick davis man that's wicked like i love my uh you know my jedi stuff in the ewoks and like there are people that lampoon that and talk about like how can you like elevate that in star wars that's part of what star wars is for me that's my dna is like you know a pre-five-year-old child growing up that's just baked right into me so it's awesome that they gave this guy the opportunity first of all keller and back on the jedi temple show from what uh, I've read, which is little so far, they gave Ahmed Best like a lot of creative liberty about that character. What's his deal? What's his history? Like, you're really just the host of a game show. So whatever your head canon is, is canon. Uh, and, and he had a lot of like influence in kind of developing the history there. And it's really, really fun. To see them give him an opportunity to, like, stand uh, front and center of, like, their marquee show at this point and save this absolutely beloved, iconic character, right? Like, for all the controversy around Jar Jar Binks, there is not that much around Grogu, man. No. Nope. You, you know, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I love it that it's like, okay, not only are we going to bring you back, but we will give you one of the most positive roles you could ever play in that you are the one that is directly responsible for Grogu's surviving Order 66.
0: Yep. Um, And a dope scene, right? I mean, it's very cool. We get to see some Jedi drop. I didn't recognize any of that other ensemble that kind of get him on the elevator, but as then we get down to the speeder and it's got a sidecar, it's doing this really classic Lucas thing of like, check out this awesome sci-fi tech that is very, like, 50s retro also and the cool chase through Coruscant which is magnificent the callback to last week's episode as we like zoom past the mountaintop and the open square like really fun and it did make me actually appreciate last week a little bit more of like I'm glad you showed me that Star Wars I'm sorry for complaining so much about the good doctor
1: yeah and if we are sort of remedying uh Ahmed Best's appearance in Star Wars canon I almost feel like we're kind of remedying some of I would say even the greater parts of Attack of the Clones, right? Like, this reminded me so much of those opening sequences when Anakin and Obi-Wan chase after the yes. assassin of Padme, right? Where they're hopping from car to car. I mean, for what it's worth, Kelleran is able to pull off some pretty awesome crap, right? First, between dual wielding the lightsabers, uh, him holding a blue one and a green one, which does, like, bring to mind to me the dark circumstances of probably pick the other lightsaber off of one of his, like, fallen brethren. I think and start he to does. with it
0: i think we see it on the floor of the elevator when the elevator door opens like the jedi that gets grogu into the elevator gets god and Mm. he like grabs it from his fallen companion which is tragic but yeah uh, very utilitarian Yep.
1: and then it becomes a speeder chase as you said and awesome stuff uh straight out of you know these typical cop movies and them driving through the train tunnel and veering out at the last second I do wonder, does speeders not have seatbelts on them? Because there's that one point where they make that rough landing and he just straight up falls off of it. Or did he just not have enough time to take caution into hand and buckle up?
0: Dare I say canonically, man? I do not recall any safety harnesses on any of this. My God, (laughs) they
1: really regarded these clone troopers as completely expendable. Like, yeah, they're just clones. We don't need to put airbags or seatbelts on. There'll be another one to replace them once they fall off. And I mean
0: for real. I'm just remembering clone troopers, like, uh, or I should say, stormtroopers, hurtling through the the forests of Endor as those things like crash into redwood trees. I don't think anybody was belted in, Mike.
1: Yeah. Wild. Uh, I guess it was a long, long time ago before those laws were put in place.
0: (laughs) my childhood yet again um you know i mean it really is cool you know i you talk about attack of the clones like i'm a big defender of that film because i think it's got some really fun sequences in it and this whole like cityscape cop chase scene uh it's so fitting for star wars but it's a different kind of chase than we get a lot we don't spend a lot of time in like urban places in star wars and i, I love the like return to coruscant and the use of coruscant and again this iconic callback to order 66 i think is a really powerful storytelling tool that Star Wars has in his arsenal to be able to go back and give us flashbacks of characters of like, you know, where were you when Kennedy got shot? Where were you on September 11th? Like, these are huge like cultural kind of touchstones for us in our world and our history and it makes sense that like this is a moment that we're going to go back to that impacted people in big, big ways. Certainly Grogu uh, more than most perhaps as he is like ferried out through the hands of the Jedi, you know.
1: Yeah, this is maybe the demented freak in me, but I kind of want some sort of anthology series about a bunch of different perspectives on the night of Order sixty six. Because, Dude, like you be said, sick. it was such a seminal event and was one of my favorite parts of the prequel trilogy, just in how gratuitously over the top and bleak it was compared to. Again, like you said, two movies ago, Charge Our Binks is you know stepping in Banthu Poodoo. That yeah, exactly is, now. We're we're like- saying- now we're getting to genocide. Like it, It's a really rough night. And I think Andor has taught us the appeal that comes with like finding out about how much the actions of our marquee characters trickle down to the regular degular folks that exist out there. And so I think it's a story beat that's worth pursuing, at least. Uh, and like you said, this is, I would imagine, a bit of a pause in that the story isn't done. Uh, they do end up getting out of there, and they make the jump to hyperspace we don't know where they go from there. And so I don't know, Rich. Do you think we have four episodes left? Are we getting another flashback to find out where they end up?
0: So I think so, because I think our inclusion of Dr. Pershing in such a big way last episode, I mean, that's where he, he you know, that's kind of where we get introduced to Grogu these guys chasing. There was a moment where as the elevator doors are about to open, I'm like, oh my God, they're going to get him. I expected it to be like Pershing or Gideon or somebody on the other side of that door, right? Um, and, and I love that it wasn't and we were all into this chase, but I, I imagine will stop back on this a couple of times. Uh, Just like the Order 66 anthology series, that could be a really cool thing for Tales from the Jedi, maybe. It's Mm. certainly part of what I love about other Star Wars media. When you go play Star Wars video games, some of like the novels, the the comics, there are these great venues to stop in and tell some of those stories because I think collectively, outside of the main trilogy films, um, there's a lot of stories about the various Jedi that had to deal with their clones during Order 66 and some of them are tragic and some of them are compelling and heroic and there's there's definitely gold in those hills that could be really cool but i feel like for sure we will come back and see more of grogu's plight as his training continues it feels like that's an arc that we would naturally explore as we go further
1: yeah i agree but you also have to wonder like i would imagine some time has passed because to your point, I think a bit of the plot armor plot armorer that came when the elevator doors opened was, well, if they saw Grogu right here on the elevator, they would just slaughter him. Like, clearly, the reason why he was wanted as a bounty by Moff Gideon was because it existed at a time where they needed his blood for something. So I imagine maybe it'll be at least a little bit where he'll be able to live in hiding, I'm assuming through the events of the original trilogy. And then at some point, he'll wind up in the clutches of... Not Moff Gideon, but obviously ping on his radar enough for him to send bounty hunters after him.
0: I thought we might be doing a thing of like three parties right we have the clones trying to kill him we have the Jedi trying to save him and now we're going to get this third scientist party Uh, because some of like the deep cut mega Star Wars lore we got some of the Inquisitors on Kenobi and Mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about them but as Order 66 goes down Palpatine definitely like snatches a few particular Jedi that he's kind of converting into the dark side right he's going to take some of the Temple Guard will become like the high Inquisitor that we saw on Kenobi and so I don't know I had some questions of a certainty you know of like is he gonna are they is it gonna be a little bit of grogu hot potato of like yeah. him bouncing out of Gideon's hands like Gideon saves him from the clone troopers and then the Jedi get him back and then and then and then but um I really liked the way it played and the kind of straightforwardness of all that and it was really cool to see Keller and Beck uh to yeah. get this little role the little bit I read about him again that, that Ahmed best really loved this idea of a Jedi who is dedicated to teaching and is just an instructor and a mentor and all about kind of training the young Links in that way, and, and that's really fitting to put him in this role with uh, with little Grogu.
1: And it was a nice way to, as I mentioned before, take a break from just the sands and the waters of this unnamed planet, right? To and that's what I, I, I really liked about last week was just the disparate settings again, Star mm-hmm. Wars as a galaxy, so it was really nice to see that contrast. We get brought back though, as the armor has finished monologuing. And she has created yet another piece for Grogu. Last time it was the chainmail, mail, which, yeah, if you look really close, you can see it under his uh, little rope. It's really He's got cute. a little
0: Bilbo vest. It's really yeah. cool. Yeah.
1: And now he has something to add onto it. It's a rondel that usually is put uh, particularly like usually at like the armpit or underarm on a suit of armor. But because it's Grogu, it is so big that essentially it's a breastplate for him.
0: I love this, that they give him the, this big, like, chestplate Um I always forget the name of the creature, right? But it's the thing from the first episode of The Mandalorian that Quill gets uh, Din to ride, and this is, like, his matching rondel. Yeah, so I... the
1: creatures that Quill teaches Din to tame, I think, are called Blargs, but the Tusky creature that he fights is the Mudhorn, I believe
0: the mudhorn right it's like a rhinoceros i thought for a moment she was going to be making him the helmet and it was going to be a whole like you have to earn the helmet type deal and i'm like oh my gosh this is intense i can't believe we're doing this but really fun I, i have a question for you about the armor mike and this has gotten in my head in the last seven days i've been going back watching some clone Wars stuff like getting really hype on bo katan but the armor notably as these horns on her helmet. And I don't mm-hmm. know that we've ever, like, stopped in to talk about them a lot, but in the greater kind of Star Wars canon, if you've not seen Clone Wars or Rebels, you won't be as familiar oh. with the Bo-Katan history, okay? But the Mandalorians end up deeply tied in with another character from the prequels, yep, that is yep. a guy with a lot of horns, uh, hmm, ends who ends up might coming back <laughs> in Darth Maul. Uh, Darth Maul, you say how did he return? He got cut in half by Obi-Wan, you saw that. I know. Somehow Darth Maul returned.
1: <laughs> with a with a big spider body.
0: <laughs> yes, with some cybernetic legs. It's a it's a whole story. It mostly makes sense.
1: <laughs> it's, listen, it's it's one of those rule of cool things where like, it's awesome. And in my opinion, when I was watching Clone Wars through in that particular order, that's when it starts to like really ramp up. It's basically when Asajj Ventress gets kicked out of the Sith. That's yes. when, in my opinion, the show gets stepped up to a new level and that gets linked directly with Darth Maul, where his brother is, like, given this mission now to go find him. His brother was named Savage Opress, which is, like, one of the best and worst names of the entire it's franchise. Insane. Yeah,
0: it's insane, dude. It's such a comic book name. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. Um, but so, Darth Maul ends up, like, on mandalore ruling the planet for a time after the fall of the kind of mandalorian leadership and the whole rise of the death watch cult and the introduction of bo katan right and and darth maul like is in charge of a bunch of mandalorians for a very long time or or a meaningful amount of time we should say and i just cannot stop thinking about the horns on the armorer's helmet yeah. and what they indicate in the way that they're like pulling me back to the Darth Maul. Role. And I feel insane that I have never thought about this before, Mike, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, because again, we haven't seen more than three Mandalorians in the same room at the same time before this season. So it wasn't like, hell, they all could have had horns. Maybe it was just a fashion thing that was in, but I think it's a really salient point that I'm not sure how to settle with because... Yeah, that was an odd period of time where Darth Maul essentially stages a coup on top of a coup and decides to dethrone Pre Vizsla and say, no, I'm actually going to be the ruler of Mandalore because he kills him in combat with the Darth Saber versus his own lightsaber. So. Yeah, that'd be interesting if she's like, well, I like that one particular guy, so I'll wear horns to signify how much I love him.
0: I just, you know, she's such an important character, the armorer, and I I was talking last week about the notion of, like, her and Bo-Katan as these very clear uh, female presences, these really strong women in this room of, like, these armored warriors, right? And the kind of built in tension between them in terms of Bo-Katan adopting the way and and the kind of, um, you know, radical fundamental that the armorer is like preaching to this cell and the way those things interact and so these questions about the mysterious pasts of our various figures like the armorer knows a lot of stuff man she seems very wise she knows a lot about the Mandalorian history all of this like culture comes with her she is a veritable font of information and what her past the way that might have tied in with that whole Darth Maul leader of the Mandalorian's arc is really fascinating to me and it's a question that I'm gonna um, have the back of my mind as we move forward with the rest of the show
1: well you talk about questions let's go to an answer here to a moment you referenced before as now we are shifting things to the rescue party for most of the rest of the episode they are going to settle down for some chow for that night and this is where we get a bit of an answer to something i'm sure everyone has asked okay so if they can't take their helmets off how are they going to eat and essentially the answer is well once everyone gets their food they all kind of go off to their own little corner and everyone goes by the honor system of no peeking, don't look over your shoulder, just look down, concentrate on your food, but you are allowed to take off your helmet
0: uh it's kind of wild when you think about the fact that they're like a military party on like this this mission specifically and their whole vibe is like we wear armor and now they're like okay it's dark in the middle of the night let's go off in separate directions and take our armor off it's just like nuts but i think the other side of it like it's really easy to poke fun at but there's a practicality there of like no we're not actually insane like we we do recognize like we need to take our helmets off because another question i've had for a long time is like they're really supposed to sleep in those things i've been playing dnd for 35 years mike and when you sleep in full plate mail you do not get a full rest you do not yeah. get the benefits of a full rest you at least have levels of exhaustion the next day so the idea that like No, there is context where, in fact, they can take their helmets off. It's perfectly reasonable. It's expected. It's all about presentation and the public face and, like, the forward face of the Mandalorians, right? Like, And and I think now you could start to, like, extrapolate on deeper levels. Nobody should ever see us without our helmets off is, is part of the idea there, right? It's not... That you literally can't have it on It's that you cannot be seen, especially by outsiders And that just leans into This whole idea of the kind of solidarity amidst them, right? The the sort of, like, found family is the wrong thing, but, but their whole, like, um their oath and their vow to this organization is above all else, and we present as a unified front, and we all are the same. You cannot, like, tell or measure the difference between us, even though we all are these, like, wildly individualized people with our different, like, you know, rainbow hues of armor. I don't know. I, I enjoyed it to a degree. Uh, maybe I'm crazy but I'm definitely crazy, but I really did enjoy it.
1: Do you think it's just a rule they made up back in the day because nobody really wants to see somebody else eat? And so they just said, oh yeah, you have to keep your helmet on. So we'll just have everyone go off in private so that like everyone who has misophonia Won't have issues with eating in front of Other people
0: uh straight up this is a thing I don't talk about a lot but I hate eating In front of other people Mike it makes Mm. me so deeply Uncomfortable it is not just because of My giant overgrown beard I'm a pretty Cleanly guy I just I don't Like it (laughs) I do not Like it I will always like eat in Private given the opportunity So I (laughs) love this notion I kind of love this idea Um and I know like I'm off on a tangent Here but I just think the whole notion of like The helmets being almost a little bit of Like the british royal guard type thing you know what Mm. i mean the like implacable like stone-faced like we must all present outwardly this way but i love the notion that like actually they came up with the helmet thing so they don't have to have communal meals
1: yeah it's just so interesting to me because i don't know i feel like some stuff has been unlocked for me where Obviously you could compare it to a lot of different sects, but the children of the watch reminds me so much of Orthodox Judaism. And maybe it's just because mm-hmm. of like my own experiences, but I think specifically about like, you know, men and women bathing separately or like mm-hmm. keeping certain things separated, uh, keeping things chaste in a manner of speaking, or in the exact opposite way, we were talking about bedroom, uh, you know, values beforehand. Of course it is a tongue in cheek myth within the Orthodox Jewish community that they copulate through a, a sheet with a hole in it, uh, mm-hmm. so that they cannot look at each other during, and so again, that is a bit coverall, I suppose, to this. This, what if that we asked? So, I mean, obviously, there are real world bases for things, but that's just like the first thing I went to that essentially keeping your helmet on is kind of like keeping kosher in the Star Wars universe.
0: I mean, we're playing with huge religious symbolism across this season in, in big, big ways. We've certainly been talking about it on the feedback show, but I mean, we literally had a, had a double baptism last episode. There's uh-huh. a chosen one, like prophet thing happening. Uh, there's all of, of these kind of like biblical tie-ins. And of course, you know, you go back to like any of that lore and doctrine, and it's inclusive with like Christianity, Judaism, uh, but yeah, that maps. Uh, and, and I think... You know, when you're talking about Orthodox Judaism, you're talking about a kind of a more rigid interpretation of of Scripture. Right. Um, And and in a lot of ways, I think it maps very closely. The Children of the Watch are very rigid in their interpretation of the way of their Scripture, of of their ideology. You know, such to the extent that Bo-Katan like kind of like laughed it off and was very dismissive of it up until this point.
1: So the next day they make the climb. And at first, you look at a guy like Paz Vizla, and you're like, you freaking idiot. Why are you climbing with a whole-ass Gatling gun attached to (laughs) your back? You're making things so much more difficult until you realize that he is after his son, and you know that this guy would absolutely riddle this raptor with bullets to get his son back. And so now I imagine this was okay, it may cost me a bit of, you know, my stamina getting up there, but it'll be worth it when I just absolutely shred this thing to pieces.
0: Yeah, dude. He was not leaving that cut. He would have ripped that whole mountain down before he left, you know. I did love it. I love that you're identifying. The whole notion of we're doing this, like, Game of Thrones climb the wall scene, but everybody's wearing full plate mail and gloves. Uh, I got, like, really into uh, mountain climbing uh, movies and, like, videos about a mm. year ago, Mike. I got kind of obsessed with Alex Honnold and Free Solo yeah. and all of this stuff, and I watched, like, a ton of climbing documentaries. The Alpinist on netflix is tremendous you guys should check that out uh but the notion of like i i've learned too much about climbing in the last year <laughs> to feel at all reasonable about any of this it was very cool but but like the extra hundreds of pounds of best garb while they're like scaling this mountainside was like pretty wild very fun but it's a cool scene right very yeah cool. they're,
1: they're like oh should we donate some to grogu right now because i'm just feeling the load right now <laughs> yeah. i shouldn't have eaten so much with my helmet off so they're going to hop up to the nest and find quite a number of younglings there, not just in the form of Ragnar, who does get brought back as food, but who is he going to be feed to? These little babies. And it's interesting, Rich, that, you know, episodes two and four very much had that adventure-like quality. You said that episode two very much felt like a D&D adventure to you in the form of plundering a dungeon now we've got the dragon side of things. And we'll talk about those ramifications later on, but what happened subsequently, right? The Raptor takes off with Ragnar and all the Mandalorians give chase was just, very much shades of chasing after the dragon and trying to take it down. Luckily, this thing goes down much easier than a typical D and D dragon does.
0: Oh yeah, for real. Uh, there's a couple of Targaryens coming back on HBO this summer that could use a ship like this. I think <laughs> like um, this this whole beat was like very cool. Them like chasing off after the thing with the jetpack. Of course, they like scan for the heat signatures. I love that. Like Pas-Vizla has no chill, and we don't really understand why yet that he's gonna go stomping in. And it's like, dude, bad idea, Bo-Katan kind of of like yelling at him and also even in that dinner scene the whole acknowledgement of like no no you're the leader of this war party you get to stay by the fire Bo-Katan the rest of us will skulk off into the shadows to eat our pog soup right um but yeah this whole like dynamic with the dragon flying off like once we get the little dragon chicks you knew that they were gonna they were gonna be there that was cool it takes the kid uh Nando like doubling back for like I'm just gonna go stab this guy in the foot (laughs) and like pull an Iron Man dive to snatch them up, like uh, just awesome, dude. It really is like, um, just such like kinetic kind of fun. I can't wait to go back and rewatch it. Uh, and, and the idea that like then they're gonna round up these dragon chicks, like they're gonna fly on these dragons, Mike. They're yes. definitely flying
1: on these things, right? So the question is when? I mean, I guess this is where John Favreau pipes in and says, "Hey, aren't you glad we pass time so frequently, so that maybe little are more? These things will be full-grown adults, and then we'll just fly on them."
0: Um, big Khaleesi vibes, right? We're gonna get oh, yeah. a little bit of like fast-track timeline. I just, you know, you referenced it—the old holiday special of like Boba Fett riding up on the dinosaur, right? We obviously had like literally Boba Fett riding around on like this this behemoth creature within the last year, where we have like the myth the sore hype building, right? And the notion that they're like, "Oh yeah, we brought back these gigantic dragon hatchling foundlings" is like just wild to me, dude, and very exciting.
1: Yeah, again, I'm not entirely sure if it's a good idea, but I suppose they if they they've been on that planet much longer than I have, so I would imagine Isn't... they have at least like some consideration as to what would make good pets versus what would not. I don't know how well these things could be domesticated but they could also serve you know they are at a young impressionable age if they get raised to become protective of this group if they served as their collective mothers then they would make a nice security system because now we are two for two in being on this planet and some sort of creature rising out to cause havoc
0: yeah i love the answer that like there are more gigantic dinosaur alligators in that lake because they're going to eat the bird in classic star wars maneuver there's like always a bigger fish yeah. uh, i really didn't expect it i was kind of like shocked and then there was a moment of like talk about the D adventure at all like we killed the monster huzzah oh wait it's got a bunch of babies back in that cave you know the like reality of that so i love that they addressed it and that like they shoved them in the ship i saw some people like there's no way those things fit in Boca Tens <laughs> which is kind of fun to consider. Eh, but it's
1: figure I- on the inside.
0: I have done uh, a kind of like notorious amount of raising wild animals. I like I've uh, raised a wild squirrel and like re released it a couple of years ago. I've had a lot of birds as a kid, a lot of like young birds that fell out of nests. I hatched a couple from incubators. When you get a bird that's that small, I realize these are not birds, but they're birdlike enough. And you start feeding that thing, man, they will like imprint on you for life. I raised a cat the summer that I was nine years old. And every year I swear to you, Mike, after he would migrate south for the winter in the spring this bird would come back to my backyard and it was wild man and i only would know it was him because it was the one lone cat bird that every year would suddenly like just land on my head out of nowhere so i think there's a good chance they could raise these uh dragon chicks to be the defenders of the covert on this strange dinosaur planet
1: one final note I'll give because this is kind of uh, all we get of Din Djarin for the rest of the episode. But what should be noted is that he does end up saving Ragnar at the end of the day. And it's an interesting beat between him and Paz Vizsla because, like you said, the two have, I would say, not the most contentious past, but certainly not the warmest of this triumvirate that was essentially him, the armorer and din from the three mandalorians named mandalorians we knew in previous seasons like especially with the way things left in the book of boba fett right they were like sparring off against each other and i think he was certainly the more aggressive to the armorer's passive of like get out of here go mm-hmm. redeem yourself you can't come back so it's clear that i would imagine he wasn't particularly happy about this guy being welcome back into the fold but now it's like a begrudging respect for yeah thanks for saving my my son's life i'm sure you're not that bad of a guy
0: yeah. And I mean, it changes the dynamic to know that Paz Vizsla is a dad with a son who is a foundling. All of a sudden, these two guys have a lot in common, right? Um, and and I think that, you know, you go back to the beginning of the episode and realize like, oh boy, Zindjar and son just totally humiliated Paz Vizla's son, right? This could have been a very different kind of trajectory. It could have been a really different episode about the kind of diversion between them. I think a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of my frustration last week is it was about my own expectations. We get that mm. title card, and I now have expectations of what the episode's gonna be. And I think a lot of people talked about coming into this week's episode with expectations about how Bo Katan would react to this kind of fundamentalist cult. And and I think I certainly had some expectations about Paz Vizla and the way that he would respond to the armor's acceptance of these two, acceptance of their story and, and kind of like willingness to take them back in. Um and And it's really fun to see it play out this way, right? I mean, it's kind of like a cat in a tree type scenario of like, yep, we saved your kid. And so now in a certain way, I think we can imagine like, it's almost like a Mad Men vibe. (laughs) <laughs> like of like pete campbell don draper like loyalty comes from the strangest of places you never mm. know right and and now i can imagine a world where like Paz will move the heavens and earth to back up dinjarin after this moment and i might be crazy but uh, we established our rdm so yeah
1: Oh, I cannot wait for Paz Beasley to get so flustered that he ends up falling down the stairs while walking down to the <laughs> bo <Bo-Katan's> throne room.
0: <laughs> that will be uh, delightful, especially with the Gatling gun on his back, you know. Yeah,
1: oh, that's going to hurt. Well, speaking of bo throne room, it may not exist, but perhaps she's in the form of imagining another one. Let's talk about the conversation that finishes this episode. You mentioned the sort of diametrically opposed forces that are din- are, are katan and the armorer when it comes to the edicts of this Mandalorian pseudo-religion. And now the two of them are going to come a bit head-to-head here, as the armorer is going to help uh, repair one of the pauldrons, one of the little uh, shoulder plates that Bo-Katan lost due to the raptor. And Bo-Katan's just going to float something out there. Can you make it a mythosaur? Instead, she's like, yeah, sure, I do Mythosaurs all the time. You know, it's my most general thing I do here at the face painting booth of <laughs> Mandalorians. And then I'm so happy this happened. Because I was waiting throughout this episode of, okay, you all just saw a freaking Mythosaur. Like, you also proved that the planet is hospitable to a certain extent. Why has this news not been circulated? And so, better late than never, I'm happy that she finally decides to say within closed quarters, tell the armor." what if I were to tell you I saw a mythosaur? Right now, the armor is just saying, ah, oh, yes, we all saw the mythosaur. One time I dreamed that the mythosaur didn't do his homework, and then his teeth fell out of his mouth. Yes, <laughs> we all have visions of it. And she's like, no, seriously, I saw it. I think we all did. I'm pretty sure that's the mythosaur. And we're gonna leave things there with her just staring at the sigil at the skull on the wall. But I have to imagine, Rich, this means something, for lack of a better term, larger. And that as much as you blow up the throne of bo including any of her wants and desires to get there, I don't know how much you can truly take that desire out of that woman. And perhaps with her seeing a mythosar, the rumors of the person who rides and tames the dangerous beast will herald a new age of Mandalore is really playing Red Free in her head.
0: It's really fun on a lot of levels. So Katie Sackhoff's been doing a ton of interviews and she's been talking a lot, maybe even a little bit out of turn in terms of revealing the perspective that Bo-Katan has in a lot of these situations that she had said prior to the episode released this week, the reason she is not bo katan is not revealed to anyone that she saw the mythosaur yet is less that she's trying to like keep this powerful secret as like a weapon she can draw out against them in the 11th tower and more so because she doesn't necessarily even believe what she saw uh it is this idea that the armorer is talking about of like I I dreamed of like giving a speech in front of an audience of mythosaurs and I was naked uh, <laughs> this 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 idea that like she she doesn't trust her own beliefs and then even further the whole notion of the dark saber and after saving din there is no conflict there she just lets him take the thing and put it back on and katie has talked a little bit about like bo katan being in a perspective of somebody else do it like i have tried (laughs) i have tried time and time again and i do not succeed at this endeavor maybe it is time to like let somebody else go and we've been talking a lot um across the podcast and in the kind of conversation at large so far with season three about the way this dynamic of rulership kind of maps to some game of thrones themes about like who who is the heir to the throne and then the person that does not want it, maybe mm-hmm. being the, like best suited to take it. And so Bo like going on this kind of emotional journey of transition to a place from like, she's the person with like the authority and the lineage to take the throne and wants it badly to like letting go of that desire, letting go of that driving force, accepting herself just as part of this group, accepting this group for who they are, and like learning the way, through them by being with them rather than judging them from the outside of it i it's just awesome character development Mike. it feels like authentic to the character that i know but it is an evolution it's a natural kind of progress that is leading her to a place where maybe she's in a headspace of like i don't need this i don't want this and that does make her perfectly suited to take it but uh hmm. this moment where she reveals to the armor like no no I saw it. It's heavy and, and it's got some implications. And I just wonder where it goes, but I'm very excited about the idea of like this army of Mandalorians rolling out with dragons and mythosaurs, like the whole deal, dude. It's going to be pretty cool looking,
1: you know? Yeah. If Moff Gideon crapped his cape when he saw Luke Skywalker, like the dude is going to avoid everything in his body. When he sees all of these massive creatures coming his direction, assumingly in the finale. I mean, I'll just plant the flag right here since we are halfway through the season I think we end the season with Bo-Katan Kreese being the leader of the Children of the Watch, uh, which is a little bit of like the fast track up to the top amount of leadership. But considering how devout these people are, if she comes in riding the freaking Mythosaur, they can't help but genuflect at her, right?
0: oh, yeah, man, they will fall and bend the knee, for sure, you know? Uh, this whole, like, the dynamic between Bo and Din, too, it's clearly, like, not a romantic dynamic, and I'm really cool with that, but the pair of them The ship is, has
1: like, sailed.
0: Uh, yeah, and I mean, it might evolve into that, right? There's, like, this uh, respect and aberration between the two of them, and this, like, friendship that I don't think we've seen with bo Katana and a lot of other people, you know? She seems to be, like, pretty chill with him in a way that uh, is endearing. But the fact that he's got the dark saber she's seeing the mythosaur these two are really like poised to lead this group in a very powerful meaningful way um i i've been like curious as to where the children of the watch will end this season will the children of the watch change evolve break grow in the way that like bo katan has as a character across the time that we have known her and met her I, i'm curious but i very much think that the end of the season she's riding a mythosaur for sure
1: Rich, anything else you want to mention about our first half of the season closer before our week-long intermission and Act 2 begins starting with Episode 5 next week?
0: Uh, lucky for me, I will return later in the week to say much more about it. But suffice to say right now, this was awesome, you guys. This is yeah. really good Star Wars. Uh, for me, like this is as uh, awesome as The Mandalorian gets. Very fun. Very cool. I'm really, really excited for last week. And uh, please forgive me for all the mean things I said about
1: Dr. Pershing. Well, he may not remember not because of that poor right. mind player machine. So you're totally fine. You pick the right guy to dunk on. I agree. Really love this. I know I'm just going to co-opt what I said a couple of weeks ago, but like this is the bread and butter of the show. Mm-hmm. This is the pog soup. This is why we love it is because of this adventuring quality where even when we stay on a planet, We explore a very different part of it. We get to see different types of characters interacting with each other, different parts of characters being exposed, even if it's not their helmets, and getting to see perhaps some wheels in motion maybe for someone like a Bo-Katan. So excited to see whatever comes our way next week. That's what I could definitively say about this season is that, well, it definitely has differentiated itself from other Mandalorian seasons. I think it still has this quality of like, Outside of episodes one and two, I really have no idea at the end of every episode where we're going next. And I'm excited to see, will we stay on this planet? Will they get taken on a mission to go elsewhere? Will we get a deep dive into yet another baddie character for the entirety of an episode? I'm not entirely sure, but I'm so excited to find out next Wednesday.
0: Yeah, they're very effectively uh, creating anticipation in me and excitement. I'm like so hype for every next week to come. And then I get sad that the week is over and I'm like, oh, we're one closer to the end. But but I am very excited week to week for these episodes to drop. and, And that's all I can ask for from good television, right?
1: Well, even after the episode drops, we are happy to be able to hear you in so many different capacities, Rich, not only with the Feedback podcast you'll be doing with Brendan and Latanya later this weekend, but with a bunch of other stuff going on on both post-show recaps and outside of it. Anything you want to plug this week?
0: Uh, yeah, you can find me. I'm on Twitter. I'm at DM Philly. My DMs are open if you want to hit me up about any of this stuff. I'm streaming D&D over at twitch.tv slash DM Philly. Uh, PSRPG is coming soon. We are, we are getting prepped for our Last of Us PSRPG. The Dark Rewatch podcast with Grace and Ariel. I can't overstate what a masterpiece Dark is. If you've never seen it, you really should scope it out. It's just a tremendous show, and I am uh, deep back in the throes of my obsession of that uh, 26 episodes of television, which are really just a masterpiece. All that stuff and more going on, uh, just keep an eye on my Twitter, and you'll hear what I'm up to.
1: Yep, and you can follow me at a Mike Bloom type. I, of course, have lots of other stuff going on. We are... While we're uh, encroaching on the back half of season three of The Mandalorian, we have already reached the back half of season three of Star Trek Picard, which has had a very fun final season. I'll cover that with Jessica Lise on Thursdays. Also rounding out the final few episodes of Heroes Season 1 with Josh Wiggler. Over on, uh, Rob has a podcast proper. I appeared on nothing but Netflix to cover the wild new reality series Outlast, which does have a group of people surviving in a similar hospitable Uh, inhospitable environment, much like the Mandalorians do right now, including some wild creatures as well. So maybe they're not too dissimilar shows. But if you're interested in all that, feel free to check it out, as well as all the other great stuff we have going on on Posture Recaps, as we are moving in on a pretty big time. If you're a fan of both Succession and Yellow Jackets, there's a lot happening, individual coverage, as well as possibly some joint coverage. But I'll let one of the members of your panel, Rich, this weekend talk about it. Speaking of this weekend, again, feedback show. Get us your feedback, star Wars at posha or you can uh, tweet at it and uh, at posha recaps. You could tweet at DM Philly, at LK Starks, at Fitzy Brandon to get your thoughts about this episode, where things may be going. Will Bo Katan ride the Mythosaur or even become the leader of the Children of the Watch by the end of the season? Who's to say, as we are only a month away from the conclusion of season three? But no matter what I can say, I am having the best time with a capital B that's going to do it for this week's recap of the Mandalorian rich thank you so much as per usual next week episode 5 chapter 21 the show is now old enough to drink but how many shots will be taken we'll find out next week until then may the force be with you
0: Hello